I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we are back once again, Man Bites Party and full motherfucking effect. I am the Commander We in the building with the Reverend Terry Goddamn and Gene Von Banyard, the Cinema Baron. How are you, gentlemen? I'm doing great, man. I'm happy to be back in the studio. We are doing the thing and ready to talk about some awesome films. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, talking about what I love the most. Great to see you, gentlemen. Uh, let's do this. 100%. So it is my week. Um, I wanted to go back a little ways uh, and pull out kind of something of a classic. Actually, it's the dictionary definition of a cult classic. This movie made zero money. Um, but George A. Romero specifically himself said was, was the inspiration for Night of the Living Dead. We're talking about 1962's Carnival of Souls. Um, relatively short movie as well. Um, was originally intended to be slightly longer, but it was an hour and 18 minutes long. Um, Carnival of Souls opens with three girls in a car sitting at a stop sign or stop light, probably a stop sign being 1962. And a couple of fellas pull up, pull some big willy bullshit, want to go on a nice little uh, drag race there. And then they knock up the three girls off of a bridge a little ways down the road. Hours later, one of those girls comes out of the water and they wind up, she winds up, uh, surviving it seems and going on down the merry her merry way to become a church organist in uh in salt lake city um she goes out there and while she's driving out starts seeing this specific apparition fun fact that is actually the director of the movie yeah uh whose name herc harvey is his name uh and while she's going, while she's seeing this apparition, she's on her way to her uh, new lodgings and this new job that she's going to get, um, which she explicitly says, even though it's a job at a church, it's just a job. Um, fun fact, our behind-the-scenes master of, of the sound, producer LB, my wife, did the same thing when she was younger, worked at a church playing piano, but it was just a job. <laughs> That's um, That's stuck. Yeah. So she, um, this, this girl ends up driving by this, this uh, abandoned and rotting pavilion uh, in Salt Lake and is just drawn to it. And as the film progresses, things get more and more eerie, more and more strange. She winds up going near the place during the day, then going there finally at night. And, and then, of course, we find out what happens at the end, which I'm sure we can, we can all 
couldn't well get into. It's some it's some Bruce Willis sees dead people gimmicks. Yes. Um, so I mean, first off, not a huge body count, but I mean, unless you count all of the people that are already dead in the pavilion, but there's three at the very beginning. Yeah. Someone does die within the first two minutes of this film, if not That's the first exactly minute. Two minutes. Two minutes, and we got three people. Um, uh, trying to say, you know, another thing, this movie was is one of those things that's, you know, in top 100 lists for everybody as far as horror goes nowadays. Um, yeah. It's hugely influential, um, but it, it made absolutely no money. Um, no one got even any royalties off of this film. Um, and Candace Hillegas, who played the main character in this movie, um, she actually, it basically cost her what might have been, we don't know, but it, she might well have had a career after this. But her agent ran out on After this movie premiered, he went, yeah, I'm done. And that was her first movie she did. She only did one other movie and then a handful of television appearances, and she never had a career after that. She's still alive, by the way. Oh, that's hmm. awesome. And she really does command this performance, man. She does a phenomenal job. She's a beautiful actress. You know, mm-hmm. she has that classic American beauty to her that that's like this girl next door, but it gives this wholesomeness to this character, even though she's somewhat worldly. It's just a job, you know? Absolutely. And there were bits... Where I remember watching, I rewatched it because it's been a few years since I watched it. And I went, you know, I never noticed how much she reminds me of Judith O'Day from Night of the Living Dead. Just in yeah. the way she looks. Sure. And some of the sure. more stoic parts of her role, you know. Because, um, I mean, Judith O'Day screams a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why did the agent run out on her? Because of the film? Because it was 1962? I think I I, I, don't, I couldn't get clarification on that. I looked high and low for that. I um, okay. I it, but the the closest I got is it's something along the lines of basically because it's a horror movie and for by nineteen sixty two standards this was terrifying to people. I mean, sure, yeah. but I mean, Psycho was made in nineteen sixty though. Sure, but this was not as well made. This was not as this was not as um, flowy and and fluid. And 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 shiny and and as well produced as as Psycho or any other Hitchcock works. Um, yeah. I, I and it wasn't overly violent. You're absolutely right about that. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. I think the guy just said this is a bad fucking movie. Um, okay. And it's and and it was clear it wasn't making any money. So uh, yeah. yeah, and it's definitely the B flick aspect to it because yeah, a movie like Psycho, I mean Hitchcock had a fucking office on the studio lot. They had all of the production and the uh, marketing behind that film, so no one was going to mm-hmm. be like, oh, Oliver Hitchcock did this film, and now we're going to kill every actress that has been in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Career, hmm. you know, they had that backing, but for someone who was a first time director with a first-time actress doing something like this, it's not going to move that well. But luckily, it does eventually get its recognition later on. You're right. Herc Harvey, Herc Harvey never did another feature after this. Not one. Yeah. Wow. He did a, he, he, his job was actually doing educational shorts. So he made a number of those. You know, he probably made some shit uh, for business workplace safety and, uh, 
you know, hey, kids, get under the desk when the nuclear bombs fall. But he didn't he didn't make another feature film ever again. Okay. Okay. So another thing that I, I found funny about this that I didn't know until I started researching it um, was that the, the directors, so your man, like I said, Herc Harvey went off to another country, South America to go film some educational shorts uh, for the company he worked for while he was gone. Royalties were supposed to be piling up from movie theaters and things like that. He goes back to get a royalty check from the producer of the company that put out this movie, Carnival of Souls. And the guy wrote him a check and it bounced. And then the, and then the company folded. So they fucked off with all the money because they definitely made, somebody made some money off of this from mm -hmm. drive-ins and things like that. Ah, um, yes, yes. But nobody <clears throat> on the film crew and and certainly certainly not the film crew, like the, the writer and the director made zero money um, and the actors made very, very little. Um, it was also, this was filmed in a very short time and on a shoestring budget too. Um, it would be like the equivalent of making a movie for 25, uh, 250 grand right now. Oh yeah, is, easily very low budget like this. You know, one of my favorite things that I found out was uh, that the bridge that they originally fly off of, like in the mm -hmm. car, um, that was filmed in uh, Kansas actually, uh, as opposed to the rest of this film. And they were able to film that by just paying for the bridge to be rebuilt after they fucked it up which cost them 12 bucks they spent, so yeah, they spent 12 bucks they really to put, the the, put the effort into working with what they could afford and what they had at hand well and he did gorilla shit too he, he did he had a lot of uh he did a ton of stuff without permits just to not have to pay the city of salt lake for it a ton yeah. of stuff i think I like that he, for location the most expensive location was um was the actual salt lake pavilion which was abandoned and hadn't been in use for years and was falling apart like when you see it in the movie that's what it was actually like they didn't do anything to it um uh, they paid 50 bucks to rent it for the week to film in there yeah so i'd stay there for um, 50 bucks for a night man hell yeah that's a deal and a half oh yeah that place is Abs rad, Absolutely. The atmospherics of that place were brilliant. And the fact that it was abandoned, disused, mm -hmm. makes sense. Definitely. It was the natural environment and atmosphere of the place coming through. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what did, what did you think about this one, Baron? I, 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 know, I know that the Reverend and I have talked about this uh, beforehand a little bit, like a few years back, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on this one. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I watched it because it is a part of uh, horror movie culture, if not popular culture. Um, there's an artist called Sopor Oternus in the Ensemble of Shadows, a Gothic musician who has an album entitled Carnival of Souls. Uh, and a lot of Gothic music, Carnival of Souls, is that line itself is used over and over again. So obviously it came from this movie. Um, I, had, I was aware of the remake, which I made the unfortunate mistake of watching this morning. <laughs> Wes Craven, rest in peace. But what were you thinking presenting such a thing? Absolute zero out of 10. One of the worst films I've ever seen. Wes Craven? 
had what to do with that movie. He didn't, he didn't direct it. He didn't write it. Produced, put his name Just, to it, executive he, he producer. Put his name on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a but shame. mine got hot garbage. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, hmm. I do love Nightmare. Sorry, so start again. I do like Night of the Living Dead, definitely. Um, certain photographic elements of this film really impressed me. Uh, within the pavilion, when they're doing the waltz, all of the undead with the corpse paint, and then it's sped up, yeah? Um, yeah. Really well achieved, really well presented, especially considering it was on such a shoestring uh, budget and such a guerrilla style of filming, definitely. I was um, That is impressive. Um, she was impressive, certainly. Um, had no real problem with any of the cast. I mean, uh, the male suitor, you know, a little bit of a predator, but this is 1962 that we're talking. Mm -hmm. um, well, now that guy, his name is Sidney... Uh, Bergen, I think, is right. That guy's actually really more important than I realized until I started going deeper into the research of this. That guy was already working at the University of Texas as an acting coach, and he actually had a huge hand in training both of the Quaid brothers, um, Brent, Brent Spiner, who played, uh, most famously played Data on Star Trek, if you okay. remember that, The yeah. Next Generation, um, and there was, there was a handful of others. I didn't write these down. I probably should have, but he, and he's did that, uh, clear up until like 2013 for, oh, wow. for um, over 50 years. He would, and he did Shakespeare festivals and all, all kinds of stuff. He was a heavy guy, um, in, in, in the acting community, especially in that area, in the Southwest area. Um, but yeah, he, that was, I, he was hard to listen to, but I realized afterwards, everything he starts with say, and then he starts talking, but he, he's supposed to be kind of a, an oafish working class predatory guy. And he does that extremely well. Yeah. Okay. I think yeah, the yeah. portrayal was... of that character is done really, really well. Honestly, man, he does have that creepy aspect to him that he's coming on to a girl that's way out of his fucking league but he's still trying to hype it up. Uh, the, the performances in here are really good. I mean, there's yeah. some offhand ones like the landlady and shit like that. that She's bad. Just, She's really bad, but... Yeah, and it's just hit or miss, but who cares? It's a fucking cheap film. Of course, they're going to have some bad acting in it, but... Yeah, the, the landlady was probably paid in like, paid like five bucks, a cup of coffee, and a pack of cigarettes. You know what I mean? Like... Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with those pay rates. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, if anyone wants to give me that for me to be in their film, I, I'm up for it. Um, um, so but I, I to, sorry. Oh, no, please go ahead, Baron. Just to finish off. Just to finish off. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not familiar with these type of films. Yes, it's not usually my forte. So I am learning through you, gentlemen, as well. Uh, so. 
for me watching this film, the acting, uh, you know, was ski with at times, certainly. Uh, the structure of the film, the structure of the narrative, the way it's pieced together is off kilter at times. Um, it doesn't allow uh, for suspense to build up appropriately and successfully for me, for me to really care about the characters. That's for me is what is lacking. Um, so basically I'm just watching the lead's performance to see how she plays existing within reality and the netherworld, if you will. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and if it had been structured more coherently, that would have had more impact on me. So the biggest thing I took away from this film was certain photographic elements, like uh, in the pavilion when they're all dancing, especially, yeah? So I appreciated this film, but it's not one that I would quickly go back again to watch, just being straight up and honest. That's fair. I mean, I we've said this before, the prime example. I appreciate the influence the Beatles have. I don't ever want to listen to a note that they played, though. Um, so um, one, as far before, I was going to mention something else, but before I get to that, you're talking about photographic elements. When I watched this movie, as I said, it had been a number of years since I watched it. And because of that, as you know, when you watch a movie that you like quite a bit but haven't dug into for some time, it, you, there are elements of re-watching it for the first time. So when I went back and watched this, the one thing, this, I, I, I may, this might just be a personal thing, but photographically, when I first watched this movie and I forgot about the scene, it struck me so heavily how wildly good it was. The part where she first... So she goes to the pavilion with the priest, right? And he yeah. goes, well, I'm not taking you in there. I'm not breaking the law. I'm a fucking priest lady. And she goes, fine. She acts, she plays the damsel in distress. Like, I'd really like to go in there. I need a big, strong man to come with me. She's bullshitting. She just wants him to go with her uh, and, and, and basically put a stamp of approval on her going inside. But he's like, nah. So she just comes back the next day and starts stomping through there during the day. And when she's walking underneath the lattice and all of the, all of the light coming through the lattice is pouring over her, that just blew me the fuck away. Um, and I read, yes. I tried to get a little deeper into that, something I did not know, specifically because this is a black and white movie. Um, they use different colors, actual colors, cyan, yellow, so on and so forth. Um, when it was daytime in the pavilion, they used a, uh, I, I can't remember what the color was that they used during the day, but it made everything pop in a different way. At night, they used a cyan colored filter for all the lighting that they used, and it produced this, this kind of oral kind of uh, um, a, a U R A L oral. Some yeah, yeah, sort yeah. Of effect. <laughs> specifically for the for the dancers and so on and so forth. So the lighting, the lighting during the day and the night are very different. And you see why that has to be later when you see the, the people sleeping under the water during the day, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, it makes it more yes. menacing at night. It's darker. It's more of an underworld tone. Um, but that's very me heavily. That's very cool as well because they created that netherworldly halo at night around the undead or the uh, the ghosts or whatever you know you think they were. Yeah, open mm -hmm. to interpretation, of course. So that's cool. I didn't know that. That is really cool. That's Let's interesting. See. I was also so as I said, this this movie George Romero 
said himself, this influenced, this is what inspired him to make Night of the Living Dead. As we were talking about influences on things, the two big things that influenced uh, uh, Harvey to make this movie were, number one, he drove by the pavilion. He just drove by there and went, holy shit. It's very, very reminiscent of Stephen King writing The Shining because he stayed at the Stanley Hotel. You know? Gotcha. Um, but the other thing that <clears throat> happened was he watched The Hitchhiker. Remember that episode of The Twilight Zone? Yes. Mm -hmm. Those two elements came together and then the, he went to this writer with it, whose name, honestly, I wish I'd have written the writer's name down as well. He goes to this writer and, and, and they put the shit together. Um, that's where the inspiration for this film came from. I just thought that was fucking incredible because I think, I'm sure you're on board with us on this. I know you're not so much into these older black and white things, Baron, but uh, the Reverend and the Commander are huge Rod Serling fans. I mean... Oh, yeah. I um, mean, above this, many others. This has been referred to as a lost episode of The Twilight Zone, but the thing about it is this that sure. director, Herc Harvey... Um, it was written by John Clifton. He went up to this John Clifton guy that wrote it and was like, I got this set piece. I know I want to do this American Gothic fucking, for lack of a better term, type of a fucking film. And you can really feel that when the organ comes into it, because when there's the initial scene and then she's like, okay, I'm going to go take off to this t town or whatever. When she's still at the school, not at the church, and she's they're making these organs and that soundtrack comes in it gives it this fucking feel that is unique to this film in itself fucking herc was like i want to do a twilight zone episode uh rod sterling is fucking literally the, one of the biggest names out there right now i'm gonna make this shit by myself on a shoestring budget in the middle of fucking utah where i have this magnificent fucking set piece you know yeah, yeah, this is this is the difference between Herschel Gordon Lewis and this type of art is is obviously no disrespect to to HG. It's just that as we talked about when we did our our first HG episode, this was a labor of love. The 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 writer and the director of this movie, Clifton and Harvey, specifically for for uh, 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 gave, they gave up their their um, payment that was supposed to come out of the original budget in order to make it come in uh, within the budget. Yeah. They took no paycheck. They were just going to take royalties. And then they didn't even get that. Um, there was another thing I was going to tell you about this. Oh, the pavilion itself is an interesting thing. So the pavilion was once a kind of a dance hall and a, and, and it was a, and a music a dance hall for Mormons oddly enough in Salt Lake City <laughs> and and then it was a, a you know a bit of an amusement park and, and so on and so forth well it it burned down only a couple of I mean burned all the way down a couple years after this film was made Ooh. and then it was rebuilt um it was rebuilt and then in the 80s at some point i couldn't get a concrete year on that and then it flooded when the when the when the waters rose that are there's water all around it. yeah it flooded and it got destroyed almost worse than the fire and then 
They rebuilt it in 1993, and it's still there. As it, but it's basically just a small venue, and it's mostly just for small musical acts to come through and play. That's amazing. Dangerous. So that means we can go there. Yeah, we can probably go catch a show there too. But that means we have to go to Utah. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty scary. Man. <laughs> that is interesting because, if I may, uh, going back to the organ playing there that the Reverend pointed out as well, mm. I also loved the scene where she became possessed and started playing the organ, and her fingers yeah. started getting seemingly longer than they naturally were, and she got the you know uh, the ghostly look, the undead look on her face. You know, she seemed to be in a trance as well. That performance for that moment was beautiful, absolutely. And then the priest comes along and says, profane, how could you play this in this church? Do you have no respect? Now, the interesting thing about this movie that um, has to be pointed out socially as well, she, it's a bit iconoclastic. She is a strong... Uh, self-minded woman in 1962 as well. She doesn't care about what you're all praying about. It's just a job. Um, and when she's in the psychologist's office, I'm not given to flights of fancy. My imagination does not take over me. There are all these male authority figures trying to control her, including the predator next down the hallway as well. Mm -hmm. But she does um, keep... Uh, herself to herself you know she um stays a strong independent woman throughout until the netherworld you know reclaims her of course i thought Absolutely. that was very cool yeah let yeah. me let me ask since we're on that subject i have something to say about the organ as well which i forgot about i wish i had said it earlier but um since we're on this the strong powerful female lead which i agree with you there are times and it didn't dawn on me until well after I'd watched the movie, I went, oh, maybe that's what it was. There are times where that gets a little muddled because it seems mm. like she recedes into this I'm a scared little girl thing where she doesn't really fight the guy off when he's trying to force his way into the room and so on and so forth. And then when he finally runs away, like you're the craziest bitch of all earth, I'm leaving, she begs him to stay. Well, it dawned on me that, A, that particular moment was out of sheer terror. Um, but the other ones, it seems like she goes in and out um, because maybe she's using that as a tool to just be like, you know, letting somebody think that you are weak so they underestimate how strong you actually are. Does that, or, or do you think that it's more of a... They're also noticed that there is something of a going in and out of whether or not she is a soul freed from a body or if she is actually alive. And obviously we find out at the end, she's been dead the whole time, but is, do you think it's more on that? Why she's fading in and out the trance, as you mentioned as well, mm -hmm. is this kind of more of a spiritual realm? She's walking the razor's edge of. I feel, do you like, think, it's both. Yeah. I feel like it's, Honestly, absolutely both. Of course, there's the sexual connotation of her being a strong woman that is questioning what the preacher and everyone else is telling her in life. And so she's reserved during those parts because of that. But it's also mainly because she's fucking dead, dude. And like it, she's the same thing with no one seeing her towards the end of the film where she's running around and no one can like see her and no one's paying attention to her that is not only her realizing that she's dead and that she's like in a spirit realm and like 
kind of fading back and out, in and out as she does throughout the film. But also I'm a woman in 1963, fucking look at me. Why isn't anyone paying attention to me? Look how fucking empowered I am. I'm not only a great actress, but she's actually playing that fucking organ, which you don't see in fucking films anymore. That actress hmm. played the fucking organ, you know? That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, just, I'll just throw it out there. It just came to me as well. Um, 1962, Carnies, the reputation of Carnies as mm. well. Yeah, as opposed to these other institutions of medicine, of the church, etc. Yeah, perhaps uh, being, being part of the carnal was actually being more true to oneself, more soulful than being a traditional woman in 1962. Just an sure. idea. She's driving her own car. She doesn't need help opening the door. She's been living a bit of a gypsy lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. that's a yeah. very, very good point. Um, to the point of the organ, um, I meant to say this earlier when, when uh, the Reverend was talking about it. I, I personally feel that the music itself and the actual organ, I mean, they show that room where that org those organs are produced early in the film. And yeah. they make a big showing out of it. It, I believe 100% is intended to be a character in the movie. The, yeah. the organ is a character. Um, and, and, and the music is the dialogue from the organ. It, there's more talking from the organ than any character, including the lead role in this entire film. It's very much true. Yeah. Very good, sir. Very good. Hmm. Um, hmm. Another, what, there, I do have one other thing I wanted to, uh, I don't know if y'all have any, we have a short movie here. We have a short yeah. movie here. So um, I don't know if we have uh, a ton more to go over. I know Terry and I, uh, Terry wanted to talk about the cars. Um, so yeah. we'll have to do that in a minute. But are you aware of what this movie's taglines were in other countries? No. What they would, <laughs> I gotta tell you my two sure. favorites. My two favorites were were Finland. It was just called Hell. Ah. That's it. <laughs> that, in, that's it. Just Hell. Just Hell. I love the finish. I love the finish. <laughs> in, in Norway, this is this is heavy biz. In Norway, it was called the Infernal Ten Seconds Between Heaven and Hell. Ooh. But it was like written that. like a Norwegian black metal band, right? Right. Right. It's a bit of lost in translation, but it's also very on the nose. You know, if you if you break it down, that's kind of what we're waxing uh, philosophically about. Is, is she knows she's dead? Is she walking the razor's edge of the spiritual world? And they're like, yes, mm. here she is in the title. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's empowered because she's driving her own car. And not only is she driving her own car, she's driving a 1960 fucking Chevrolet Bizcane, man. This thing yeah. is beautiful. It's a two-door. That is, It's got the fins, but not too much. It's got that early fucking V8 in it. It's mm -hmm. just nice, man. Yeah, those, uh, fins are so, those fins are subtle, not like the Bel Air that came uh, just before and even after. It, it's, it's a little more... It's a little oh, more subdued. Yeah. No, that Bizcane, that Bizcane is like some single bourbon, <laughs> pure stuff. 
Bel Air is just a fucking bottle of Jim Beam. Uh, you can get that anywhere. That's just Bel Air. This is a fucking biz cane, man. And it's beautiful. It really is. But there's a lot of cars in this fucking film. And a lot of these shots that he took, since they didn't have a projector, a rear projector, like they you see in most films where people are bouncing around in a car that's just sitting there and there's a projector behind them. He had to do that the cheap way. And he used this uh, Aeroflex camera which is what they use in newsreels and stuff like that. And so that actually allowed him to do a lot of the other footage where it's the ghostly features and the, the review mirror and stuff like that in a more real way that makes it even more surreal than mm -hmm. if you would have looked as cheesy as every other huge studio film did in the day where they're in a car and they're bouncing back and forth. Yeah, sure, sure, and they sure. just have a big rear projector behind them. So, uh, yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. I feel like the cars do have a lot to do with this film as well, obviously, because she dies at the beginning. For all we know, at the end of the movie, her corpse has just been sitting in that car the whole time. This is all just a dream. Well, the, car, shows the, car, the car that went off the bridge that they are in at the end of it is a 49 Chevy Fleetline Special. Yes, which That's also, a bad motherfucker. Matter of fact, all of the prominently featured vehicles in this movie are all Chevrolet. All of them are. Yeah. Um, and the one, the one that the guys were driving in the drag race was a, a 35 Chevy. Uh, what was it? It was a 39. Oh, it's a, it was a Master Deluxe. It's a Master Deluxe. There you go. Yeah. 35 That's Master Deluxe. Which, Which you can get all this information from the Internet Movie Car Database, which is a thing. And they will tell you any single movie, any car that's in it. Now, it's an amazing how, tool. How? Okay, cool. We in, didn't get paid for that. How in East Jesus hell do they expect us to believe that these two dickheads rolled up on these girls in a 35 Chevy thinking they're going to be a 49 Chevy. It's not going to happen. Well, that's the, happen. It, that's the thing. It's that the girl that's with the dark hair at the very beginning of the movie, she's like, I'm going to fucking blow you out of the water. Yeah. And they're, they're fucking dusting those two dudes that thought they were so tough in their fucking master deluxe. And fucking the only way they win is because they drive these girls off the road. They're the assholes of the fucking film. Oh, they're the worst. They're the worst. Question, question, gentlemen. Uh, 1962, this was made, but like Blood Feast, I consider this a 1950s American culture film, more so than a 1960s film, being 1962. Yeah, it's a bit how of a time capsule. A bit of a time capsule. How likely is it that three girls in uh, the Chevrolet that you described uh, would be out on the road racing other guy, guys and other Chevrolets? Yeah, was this common practice? I don't believe so. I think that's very uncommon, but I think that that was the point is to show that if you notice, there are really only a handful of women in this movie that have any type of prominent role. There's the, there's the landlady and then there's the three girls in the car yeah. and all three of those girls were about that race. They're all clearly strong women. The only one was kind of the outdated old school landlady. She's the only one that's not exactly a strong, personally strong female person. 
everybody else is like, that broad didn't even put out her cigarette when she was racing those dudes. She just got her fucking. Yeah. She's just fucking holding that thing straight and pulling them to waste, man. To, to answer your question, Baron, I do not think that is super common, but it's not unheard of. And I think that, uh, I think our boy um, Harvey was on some female empowerment bids with this, yeah, uh, with this flick and showing that basically if men can't win, they're going to cheat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And every yeah, other no, no. man she runs into calls her hysterical. You know, the fucking doctor, the fucking mm-hmm. old guy at the water fountain, all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the use of the word hysteria stuck out like a, uh, a sore thumb in the film, mm-hmm. definitely. <laughs> we all know the history of women and hysteria and the various means that men basically use to quash women's hysteria going back to the dildo in Victorian times, yeah? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we probably all know some some uh, females very close to us that might put a knife in you if you call them hysterical. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would not, never it's dare. Not a, this, it's not a good yeah. idea, man. It's out of line. No, no, no. That's, that's an out of line word. Um, the other thing I was going to say, the only other thing, I think I said, this was a very small crew. It was only six people, the director and writer included. Six people were behind the scenes making this movie. Um, not counting actors, which is also very, very small for that time. That is, that is, sorry, yeah, um, that is very impressive, actually, because I've been in a, I I can't even count how many student productions um, where they have more technology, they have more means and resources and even information and knowledge about how to make films. And uh, they certainly did not come up with, no offense, but certainly did not come up with this type of film. And this is back in 1962, again, yeah? Right. So that is impressive. That is definitely impressive. It, It shows the, it shows the care of the craft, that the director and the writer had, it, they were able to produce. There might be some herky-jerky parts here and there, but overall, cinematically, visually, uh, and audibly, it's it's a it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, so yeah, I I've just this movie is kind of just an impressive labor of love to me. Um, do we have anything else to say about this, gentlemen, before we get into the gimmicks? Let's you know who shot. Sorry, if I may, do you know who shot it? Just curious. I mean, I, I really am not sure. The only names I could dig up on this yep. from the behind the scenes were uh, Clifton and, and Harvey. Um, okay. I don't, I didn't see cameramen, anybody listed. Director of photography, I didn't see any of that. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll I'll credit it to them and a uh, a process of experimentation that turned out really well as well. They probably laid the groundwork for future cinematographic techniques that, of course, Romero, as you were saying, picked up yeah. and ran with. Yeah. Yeah. So There's definitely some scenes in that front yard of of Night of the Living Dead that you can see where he took some cues from from this movie specifically for sure 100 percent. and i got this movie off youtube and every version i looked at night of the living dead was queued up to play after so even the algorithm nowadays understands (laughs) the evolution yeah it's funny you found it on youtube the other thing about this movie is because it was so under budget it went directly 
directly into public domain. It was never yeah. copyrighted because they never had the money. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Supposedly um, there's a colorized version. Did either you see the colorized one? I saw stills I of it, but I didn't no. see the full colorized version. I, I'm believing that I, I'm starting to think, because I thought the same thing when I started researching this, I'm starting to think that those were colorized spills, if that makes okay. sense. Okay. There might yeah. be a TNT version of it that Ted Turner's stupid ass did back in the 80s or something. You know, I, I'm not sure, but I, I don't know that I'm interested in seeing that. No, yeah. I, th I think it would lose the noir, like the, you were talking about the lattice work. Yeah, that's very noir-esque, film right. noir-esque. And it would lose that impact because it's an interplay between shadow and light, life, death, everything we've discussed so far, yeah? Right. I mean, when they, when they picked out the dress that she was wearing, they didn't pick it out because it was, this green is going to look so good in here. They said, this green's going to look like a really, the, the right gray is what we're going for. That's, yeah. yeah. And it's going to lose all of that charm and all of that brilliance is gone because it's just washed out in a sea of color. Um, yeah, yeah. So I had a I've been batting back and forth how to do this, um, how to do the. Uh, well, you know what? While I'm thinking about that, uh, bit of violence, Reverend. The initial just going off the fucking side, man. Just going off the car crash. I think it's just the best, honestly, because it's a physical effect and the girls aren't in there, you know, but some stunt guy did that, or at least they just fucking rolled it off into the fucking, it's awesome. I love it. They never do that shit in real life in movies anymore. I know it's a shame. It's really a shame. They don't do stunts mm. like that, like the way they used to. Um, Baron, favorite bit of violence. I have to agree. Uh, with a want to come up with something else, but that is the most impressive bit of violence because it's not a violent film. It's a spooky, atmospheric film. Certainly right. the violence the violence was, is within her own psychology, yeah? Yeah, uh, yeah so, so I do co-sign with the, uh, uh, the reverend there. Sure, I, I mean, I feel like I have to. There's other stuff I was thinking about, but as you said, it's not... That is the only direct piece of violence in the whole movie. Um, yeah. You could argue that, uh, you know, those, those, I mean, actually, no, I, there is one and it's actually really well done, especially the way they play it out afterwards where the cops come onto the beach at the very end when the ghouls finally get her on the beach and then the cops come through and go, well, here goes the footsteps, but then they stop. They don't go anywhere after this. So where the fuck is she? <laughs> I'll give you that. That's after that's aftermath of a violent um, happening. Right. Yeah. yeah, they definitely catch her. They definitely put hands on her, but they don't show. They kind of pan up and don't show her. You know, being ripped apart or whatever they do. Um, whether yes. Hellraiser effect they were trying to allude to. Um, they they actually use omission. Uh, to let it happen, to, to not show it, but to let it happen in the viewer's mind. They let, in the gutter of the mind, of the viewer's right. mind, they actually play with that very well, yeah. That's, that, I mean, that's the thing that is missing so often from movies now. Don't get me wrong, I like flat-out gore, but I really like the subtlety of, of using omission in that way. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, with product placement, I did notice something I never did before. When they're drinking in the bar... Um, both of their Budweiser bottles are facing directly out, but 
I do believe it to be unintentional because they definitely didn't get any product placement money for it. I just nah. think this was in a time where that wasn't something that Budweiser Anheuser Busch would come and say, "Hey, hey you can't do that. Okay. You got to pay us money." Okay. Would that be the so same for Shiv? Public domain, uh, like right away, no one ever got sued about it either. You know, right, right. <laughs> I mean, no one's making money off of this. Budweiser can't sue no one. You know, right. And yeah, I uh, t- I heard what you were going on there, uh, Baron. I think same for the Chevrolet business. They yeah. just yeah. these were the cars they had access to. End end of uh, end of story. You know, so yeah, sure. Let's. Uh, th- I've thought long and hard about this one, and there's. A couple that I want to do, but I'm gonna I'm gonna settle. Who wins in a fight? <laughs> is it is it your man? Um, uh, what was his name? S- Sydney uh, Bergen played him. Uh, John Linden, right? Creepy yeah. predator guy. That guy, or his buddy at the bar that was trying to swoop on the girl. Let's say the guy's not taking no for an answer. And they get into it in the bar. Who wins that fight? I'm gonna let you two set it off. Man, that's a good one. Like seriously, <laughs> mm. it just the scene just progresses, and they just get into a fist fight in the middle of the bar. It's a perfect setting. It, it's not even. It's not crazy to think about. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it almost looks like it's gonna get there. Mm. All right, true man. that. I got, I got the, I got the answer to this. These motherfuckers are fighting, right? This fucking sexual predator is just taking a beating because that other guy's like way bigger and stuff. And he's just taking a beating and they beat the fuck out of each other pretty well. And big guy's about to like take him out. She comes up behind him and fucking bust a ball over his goddamn head. And then has to drag this fucking predator piece of shit dude home puts his ass to bed and then goes be the boss by herself goes back to the carnival of souls slaps all those other motherfuckers around so she wins the fight so so the buddy wins the fight yeah i think the buddy wins the fight but only because she saves the other guy's ass okay (laughs) uh baron it's like almost a draw that's what i'm saying I, i got you but she's like, I came to the bar with this guy. I can't let him get murdered. So she fucking takes him, the other guy out and drags his ass back home. So you're Vince, you're Vince McManning this thing. You're bringing in, <laughs> you're bringing in a motherfucker from the side that's not supposed to be in the ring that just starts hitting people with chairs. Yeah. Yes. We, right. In the biz, in the biz that is called shenanigans. Correct. Correct. Well done. <laughs> um. I liked that there, Reverend. I liked that you were using the setting as well for the fight, definitely for the outcome of the fight to influence the outcome. I'm going to take it back before the scene, yeah? Um, They know each other. I think they probably work with each other, yeah? Because uh, that's not the usual that you uh, usually show up with. But he is shown to be dominant, though, in his attitude. He puts him in his place. Uh, So... Because of that, um, I think he is the dominant. He is the alpha to the beta there. Uh, I think he would just uh, give him a slap and the other guy would just run off, uh, you know, crying in the corner. So I think Lyndon, the predator at the house, wins. I agree. I'm going to tell you why. It's, it's along the same lines. 
But basically, it feels like the other guy might... And, and whether or not they work together, I kind of got that impression too. But I'm like, bare minimum, they've been in this town for a while and they both drink in the same fucking bar. Absolutely. So they've gotten to know each other that way. But clearly this whole there's not enough women thing has been an issue before. And they're both ridiculous, hideous fucking chuds that can't pull women very well anyway. So they're both kind of desperate and both alcoholics. So my guess is that the, the other guy whose name we never know, that guy, I think he was getting big willy with John Linden because he was already fucked up. I think he was already in the bar when John showed up with homegirl, because remember he picked her up late. He picked yeah, her up late cool. from the church. Yes. So he hadn't been drinking yet. Son was already there drinking and he's playing pinball, smoking cigarettes. And he's so fucked up. He thinks, I know I'm just going to just jump in right where you left off while you go to get a beer. And he went, no, 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 no. Let me explain something to you. You can take a fucking walk. I'm going back over this. Not how it works. And eventually the only reason he even had the balls to do it was because he was fucked up. If he hadn't been, he would have never opened his big fucking mouth. And notice John Linden was going to, he grabbed that motherfucker by the lapels and politely <laughs> take a fucking walk. And that dude did take a walk. I'm with you. That dude's the beta. He's not fucking, he's, he's not. And also when he, when John ends up leaving with, with our home girl, that dude is looking like a beaten puppy. Like he's like, Oh, like he was hoping John was going to get tired of it and leave. So he could swoop in. Cause he can't secure his own, his own dame, uh, his own skirt. Uh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> I go, I go John Linden. I go John Linden because even I think he, I think he's just the tougher guy. Um, having beer balls doesn't, doesn't make you a better fighter. Believe me. No, 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 no. I've oh, seen no. it. We've both seen it. Yeah. I'm not going for that. I just want him to lose. I just want John to lose, honestly. So I feel like I feel like they're both on a comparable level of scumbag. We don't know that about the other guy. Like you I said, mean, maybe he'd just been there for four hours before they got there and was like fucking bottle and a half deep. It was like, hey homie, who the fuck is this? He doesn't like try to like hit her over the head like a caveman or anything. He's just like <laughs> Ah, but Reverend, Reverend, um, if I may, like, I think the dialogue, the wording that he does use, the derogatory term that he uses is, I may have it wrong, that's, uh, she's not the usual pig you show up with. Yeah. That's scummy. That's, right. that's scummy. I mean, there's bird, et cetera, but pig? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, but once again, I feel like just to get back to the brilliance of the writing and the strong female lead that they were clearly creating and in doing, in doing that, they also made every man possible, some amount of degenerate, even the doctor, that old man in the park, the pastor, they're all just kind of like, you're a woman, you're a woman, all of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even yeah. when Not they the meet Gas station attendant's a good guy. That dude fucking rules. The guy that works in the, and the dude that works in the garage that fixes her car. Yeah, He's that's good, what I'm talking about. Yeah, that guy's all right. Well, she's kind of ah, shitty to the gas station attendant. This is a Chevrolet commercial, man. <laughs> Baron, 
no, 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 no. I was about to say, I was about to suggest they're working, uh, uh, they're working class, but so is Lyndon and the other guy. They're both working right. class guys as well. So that doesn't work. Never mind. Um, incidental, incidental good guys, if you will. The, uh, well, I yeah, I feel like, <coughs> excuse me. I feel like that was something they, they said, yeah, there's half of the working class dudes in this are, I mean, we don't find out they're degenerates. They just treat her properly. The other two are drunken, degenerate, working class assholes. And then the other two men that you really deal with are, are men of stature. Meaning the guy yeah. in the park with the water fountain, that guy was wearing a really nice suit. I'm just saying. And then the other guy is a fucking doctor. So that there's some, it just cinematically, it leads you to believe that they're a little, a little bit of a more upper echelon, upper middle class, if you will, for 1962. And therefore they, they kind of, they're talking to her like, once again, like you're, you're a woman, so let's settle down, but also they're not using horrible, uh, 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 um, linguistics to describe her, talk about her, or talk to her. They're trying to be proper when they speak to her. Yeah, but they're using derogatory, I do agree with you, but they are also using derogatory language and terminology based on their societal roles, the priest, oh, the doctor, yes, profane, uh, hysteria, etc. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about the reverend, yeah. I would put him I would put him somewhere in the lower middle class, the reverend. Sure. Not, not, yes, because not our yeah. reverend. Yeah. <laughs> not me. He's a Episcopalian. Um, He's the pastor. <laughs> so um, that's all I've got for this one. Anything else to add, gentlemen, on uh, Carnival of Souls? No. Nah, what do you want to? Uh, you want to rate this? Oh, yeah. yes. Yes, yeah. I, I do. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't write okay. down my gimmicks this time. Um, I complete. I was taking so many trivia notes. I forgot to write them down. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and make this. This is HPV because okay. it sticks with you forever. It's in a lot more things than you think it is. It's not a little deal, but it's also livable and you can get through your life without noticing but it's more important than you think it is. Yeah. You have a number to assign out of 10 as well there, Commander. Well, okay, so I'm gonna, I, for me personally, I have two numbers and, and I have a reason for that. Pardon me if it's out of line, but for me personally, this movie is an 8.5. For the world at large, for the world at large, I think, well, maybe eight, solid eight. For the world at large, it's important to, importance to film. Um, it's, I mean, it's a seven. I think everyone, everyone that enjoys this genre, this era of horror and appreciates filmmaking should put this no lower than a six and uh somewhere close to a seven Robert. i'm gonna say this is most like dementia i think this is like dementia honestly because it's old and you may remember it and you may not remember it but it's very <laughs> definitely gonna happen to you at some point if you're into film because it's an important film and everyone's gonna tell you to watch it that's what we're telling you to do right now but you may not remember that 
after you watched it or any of the details it may take you three times to figure out that she's fucking dead i don't know it's definitely like uh sorry sorry did you say a number there as well there Rip? uh i'm giving it i'm going 7.5 maybe okay. eight but there ain't there isn't enough blood in it for it to be any higher than that i don't think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's not enough blood or yeah no i like it i like it uh for myself there reverend if i may uh yes well my ailment uh i'll use to describe it uh i will say it is like a nightmare disorder yeah uh yeah uh the sort of thing that you'll have traces of when you wake up and you'll have certain images flashing to the forefront of the mind the consciousness but you can't quite make it out but it's going to have that profound effect on you that's going to influence every other kind of artistic practice that you do or even just in your day-to-day appreciation of such things and for me i will agree co-signed with commander we there uh it is as i say i am learning about these films uh and i'm becoming accustomed to them uh, but i'm not quite there yet but the commander is exactly right if you appreciate filmmaking if you appreciate horror i certainly can place it no less than a strong six yeah okay yeah. fair enough fair enough you know did you before we wrap up here did you guys notice at the so at the very end, all three girls are in the car. They finally pull the thing out of the, the river after like a week, right? Yeah. Did you notice that they are shivering? I never noticed it before I oh, watched it again today. Are. They I are. think this was the first time I ever really noticed it too, because I watched it on my big ass TV in my living room, you know. Right, right. I think I don't think I watched it on big enough a television before, but this time mine's a little bit. Mm. It's not as big as your television, but you know. It better size than it was the last time I watched it. I noticed they are active. They are really fighting it, and they do a good job as best they can. But apparently that water was freezing cold. And they oh, were... Imagine, man. Yeah, you can see their eyelashes twitching. Like, they're trying hard, but it's there. Did you see that, uh, Baron? I did, actually, and very well pointed out, because we've talked about certain uh, filmmaking techniques that are not practiced today. Uh, certain acting, uh, the chutzpah, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> that actors don't have today. little quick anecdote. Uh, I was doing a short little film where a guy kneeling on concrete was too much for him, yeah, for a certain, for an elongated period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I came along, and I'll blow my own, my own trumpet here, and I just went, bang drop to my knees straight away let's do this yeah <laughs> yeah i mean yeah the, you know what i'm saying yeah of course your man basically your man that was kneeling down on concrete wouldn't have survived william freaking he'd have gotten fucked <laughs> up <laughs> hey yeah 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 i would i'd revel in oh, to be in the exorcist and such things my god that yeah. man genuinely <laughs> we'll probably have to do the exorcist on a special show someday but that man genuinely abused everybody on that set. <laughs> he fucked everybody up, man. Yes, oh. he's in the uh, upper pantheon of cinematic assholes with Herzog and such people with what they put actors through. Yeah, yeah. We might, you know, that's something we should do sometime too. Is just a just a just the pantheon of cunts uh, of directors because I mean I don't know if you're going to convince me anyone's worse than Herzog, but we'll. 
We'll get Kubrick, into it another. Shining, Shelley Duval, just throwing yeah. it out there. But Herzog was every waking moment that he was on a set, he was hitting somebody. He's an asshole. Well, he, he, he has killed actors. There is that. Yeah. yeah, he has been responsible for the death of actors. Yeah. And did not give one mad fuck about mm. it. Like, he did not. Know. Nope. Yeah. That's show business, motherfucker. I don't know mm-hmm. what to tell you. This anyway. is cinema. <laughs> anyway, please. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Baron, Reverend, and from myself, Commander Wee, we will see you next up. And we are doing uh, the Baron's pick, which is? Yes. Uh, yes. Le Grand Danish Provocateur, Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built. This is going to be interesting. I, 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 uh, I'm excited to talk about this one, and I'm excited to get some some clarification from you on certain things about about oh. Lars himself. I'm ready to go deep, certainly. All right. Signing well, off is the commander. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been an honor and a pleasure serving with you. Absolutely. The Baron is most satisfied. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.